It's where they are now, who they are as human beings, and hearing them, seeing them, see them, right? Because the prison system dehumanizes. That's why they put numbers on people's uh, uh, uniforms and they and stripes and colors, but usually they, they lose the identity. But the idea is, who are these people? Whose family are they part of? What What is their story? It's, of course, I say humanized. They're already human, but the system has dehumanized them. So we want to shed light on that humanity that has been there throughout. Welcome to And Then Everything Changed, a podcast about the pivotal moments in life and the decisions that define us. I'm your host, Ronit Plank. Today, I'm speaking with Bea Spadaccini. Welcome, Bea. Hello, Ronit. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm really excited to share your story and the journey you've had with criminal justice reform and with human rights and all the interesting places you've been in with our listeners. Thank you so much. Yeah. Yeah. So I first became aware of your work with your one in four podcast. um, And I was hoping you could just talk a little bit about that. Yes, I'd be happy to. So I started the journey of one in four podcast, which really stands for one in four adult Americans as a criminal record about 18 months ago. I um, have been working for a long time as a press officer and communications person and freelance journalist in a variety of roles in different organizations. And about a year and a half ago, I left a comfortable government job to just start my own project and wanted to focus on an issue that I care about a lot domestically, which is uh, mass incarceration and um, all the people that are caught in uh, inside our prison system, sometimes for very, very long periods of time. So the One in Four podcast does look at People who come out of the prison system in the U.S. and uh, return to society, which is really 95% of the people that are incarcerated, eventually go back to their communities. And I started to focus on re-entry and barriers to re-entry. So once people uh, pay their dues to society and um, spend time in prison or jail, uh, then they come back to their communities. And there's a lot of collateral consequences or invisible consequences that they face uh, related to housing, mental health services, or even reuniting with their family members, if they're women with their kids and if they're men also. Um, So the podcast uh, was uh, a project that started a year and a half ago, and um, it has... um, become a big part of my life and it has allowed me to meet amazing people that are in the space not only coming out of the prison system but also facilitating the re-entry so community-based organizations doing amazing work how did you first become interested at this level with with this subject yeah so as a journalist communications um passionate person about the tool of communications I decided to use my experience to create a platform so that we could collect and document these stories of reentry. But really the inspiration is a dear friend of mine who started a nonprofit called um, the Free Minds Book Club. And uh, it's DC based and she focuses her work on 
um, juveniles that are sentenced as adults and are sentenced. And because D.C. doesn't have a federal pr prison, when they are sentenced and they go to prison, they're sent all over the country, like 500 miles away, as far as w away as Kentucky or Oklahoma or um, California, or it could be anywhere. So I met a lot of these young men that come out after doing seven years on average, and they're like in their late 20s or mid 20s, because sometimes they go in when they're 16 or 17. And I was just stunned by what I heard from these young men and also from my friends and her compassion towards these young men, predominantly young men who are black and brown, I would say in, this, in the district specifically, and um, their stories of where they come from, the challenges they had growing up and being caught in the system that labeled them. And of course they did crime and most of them, they own it. But mm -hmm. um, then really a very punitive and retrib retributive system of punishment that we have. And can even you think hard of, uh, yeah. can you think of an example in particular that um, I'm sure there, there are, many, many different stories that you've heard at this point, but are, is there one that stands out as just being sort of the anthem for you? Well, I think that for me, in the past, we lost two people uh, in the course of doing these uh, this podcast, and one of them was a free mind guy. Uh, he's on, I think, on our episode seven, and his name was Joshua, and uh, he was just an amazing young man, full of positive energy. He was a John Lewis fellow, um, 2019 with Free Minds Book Club and was very much involved in giving back to the community, in working in public schools, uh, sharing his experience as a young man, falling through the cracks and ending up in the, in the prison system and surviving that, coming out and really trying to get his life together. And unfortunately, he died a few months ago and the causes are a little uncertain that I think think it has to do with um, maybe succumbing to addiction, which is a big challenge. And um, he was not at all like someone who was drogatic. But I think that because of the trauma and the depression that sometimes uh, a lot of returning citizens or returnees, they are citizens, so they're returnees, they face and the challenge of the barriers can, can bring them down. And so that then there is either alcohol or drugs or something to numb the pain and of the trauma that also they carry within, which has mm -hmm. been exacerbated by the prison system as well. So that he's definitely someone that was a very positive person, a big loss to the community here in DC mm -hmm. yeah, uh, that he was part of. So and, uh, many, many stories I came across that have inspired me. Yeah. And it seems like, would you say that there's a trauma upon trauma kind of profile for the people who have been incarcerated? Yeah, for sure. And I hear this over and over again uh, when I interview activists, local activists that are in the space of reentry and in the justice space. They always tell me trauma starts early, way before they're impacted by the justice system, um, especially for women. And I have interviewed uh, several, you know, I've met many women, but I've on the podcast, and usually there's history of sexual abuse from early on in childhood, which carries that into relationships as adults, um, that eventually end end up um, affecting their future and 
possibly getting them into the justice system, into the prison system. So yeah, trauma Would is you a big say, part of the story. Yeah, uh, I think so. And I feel like the more I learn about um, people through actually my podcast, the more I learn about how trauma in childhood <clears throat> has led to addiction or has led to difficulty in later life. It's kind of just a connect the dots situation, I feel like. For sure. You're absolutely right. And I, I feel that it connect the dots and it's, it, 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 I think it prevents people from really um, moving forward. And uh, especially when they come out of the prison system, unless they have the mental health services that they need, because it's not just about the material things which are absolutely necessary, like housing or getting food into the stomach and um, getting a job. But it's really, in in order to do that, they have to be mentally healthy and well and able to sustain a very difficult period of reentry. Yeah. Would that be considered uh, a very fragile time, the reentry time? Yes. In fact, the recidivism rate, meaning the probability of going, being sent back to prison and ending back in prison with other felonies is really high for the first uh, five years, I believe, three to five years when people come out of the prison system. And of course, the younger they are, the higher the recidivism rate. So oh, the wow. services are really important that they need to be there. And that's why we felt important. it was important not just to bring stories of reentry of people coming out of the prison system, but also of the organizations that exist in, in the communities um, that anyone can support, and either through volunteer, even by sharing their skills. Um, they can. There's a lot of organizations that require support from the community and volunteers, and people can get involved very easily anywhere they listen to this podcast. There are reentry organizations. And the crimes that these these young people go away for, they go to prison for, are is, is there like a, a kind of consistency to the kind of crime that gets them into jail, or would you say it's varied? I would say it's varied, and I would also share with, uh, with you, Ronit, and your listeners that we don't focus on the charge because that really has already defined who they are, and that's part of the stigma. It, what is important is the rehabilitation process and where they are when we meet them and uh, whether or not they have um, addressed some of the issues. A lot. I mean, most of them, they, they are very open about the fact that, yes, they have committed a crime. They, they regret it. They wish they didn't do it. It was a bad decision. There's a reason why they got to that point. Um, you know, and, and then they want to move past it. They've paid for it. They need the support to get past it and become productive citizens. So the, there's a variety of crimes. There, they, a lot of them are drug-related offenses uh, because a lot of people in our prison systems have gone in due to uh, having been caught with drugs or having been selling drugs as a result of many different factors and variables, and they've been given very punitive sentences. But there's also violent offenders, armed robbery. I mean, there's a lot of things that people do and bad decisions they make, especially when they're young, and they get that. Right, right. And and a lot of people make decisions when they're young um, that are not good, but if you get caught and then you get trapped in the system, it seems like it's a, a very hard 
it's a very hard stigma to escape. Yeah, you get caught, but some people get caught and don't have the money to get out of the system or get a lesser sentence. So poverty has a lot to do with it, too. Yes. And, you know, me personally, I haven't had a lot of interaction with people who are uh, coming back into society after being um, in prison. And so what is some some information that you have in doing the work you've done that a lot of lay people like I, like me don't have? Like, what are some of the, the major misconceptions well, about people yeah. coming out? Thank you for asking that, Ronit. That's a, that's a very good question because the title of our podcast is One in Four, Adult Americans as a Criminal Record. So really, the chances are that you have interacted with someone coming out of the prison system is pretty high. Mm-hmm. Basically, a lot of people that might be serving you at the restaurant or might be helping you at a car shop, repair shop, or I mean, there, there's a lot of people in our everyday encounters throughout our daily lives that may have been impacted by the justice system. We just don't know. There's a lot of stigma. They don't go around talking about it, right? So uh, it's, I think the biggest message is. It's a lot more than you think, and so we need to be compassionate towards one another so that we can give people the benefit of the doubt. And they may have, I mean, people that are in jobs that we take for granted, um, it, it may be really hard for them to hold that job down, give them a break. Sometimes there's under a lot of stress. They may be homeless. They may not be able to see their kids despite having done time, but because they have a felony record, there, was, there are a lot of restrictions if they're women in how often they can interact with their kids. So to me, the biggest takeaway is that the U.S. puts a lot of people behind bars. And so you may not know, but it's actually chances are really high that you've interacted with someone that has been impacted by the justice system. I'm, I'm curious about your involvement and interest in the social justice here in our country, because this is not your native country. You're correct. I'm originally from Italy, and I have uh, worked, though, in social justice issues uh, most of my life, and actually really focused on using communication as a strategic tool to elevate conversations related to justice. Not just justice in terms of... Um, the prison system, but justice related to poverty, refugees, um, uh, gender-based violence. So I have worked, my first job out of graduate school was with Amnesty International. I was the press officer for Italy. And that job sort of shaped my way of thinking about social justice as a rights-based journey. So I see healthcare and education also as human rights issues in many ways, justice issues. Um, when I was in Italy, I remember reading reports about police brutality in the United States and also interviewing people on death row uh, for amnesty and for the Italian public, sort of explaining the justice system in the States. So I think that link to here and what I'm doing now was... Um, the seed was watered at the beginning of my career with my work with Amnesty International. Then after that, I ended up doing a lot of work in international development, uh, first with women and gender-based violence, um, with an Italian NGO. Then I also worked in Bosnia during the war. I worked with refugees. And 
really my goal was to bridge the the divide, the psychological and physical divide between situations of oppressions and and people like my family and my dad. He was often my target audience. I figured if I could reach my dad, I would reach a lot of people in between. <laughs> so like the war in Bosnia was next door to Italy. It wasn't that far, but people went about their business, their daily lives. And yet I'm thinking, wow, there's so many people that are suffering in the country next door. How can we bring these stories and get people to pause and think and what can I do? What is my role? And why should I care about people losing their, their houses in Sarajevo or in, uh, uh, I was in Zagreb for a long time and seeing all the displaced people coming to Zagreb. And it's really like just a few hours away from Italy. Mm-hmm. What was what was that like to be? Would you, you were a journalist at that time. I was working for uh, nonprofit organizations that were uh, providing services for refugees, in, and I would be the communication officer. So I would collect stories of impact, and also collect stories of need, and have uh, share them with the press in Italy. Or I would work with journalists to facilitate access to refugees in different, that particular case was in uh, Bosnia-Herzegovina, in Bosnia at the time, and in Croatia. And when you were in that capacity, when you were working in that capacity, were you able to do personal outreach as well? I I guess what I'm trying to ask is like, you were not uh, like a, a neutral bystander, right? So were you able to sort of reach further into this human experience and offer something from yourself or, or did you find yourself with your hands tied? Uh, you know, it's, it's a very, it's a good question and a tricky question because especially I, I'm not a doctor uh, and I'm not um, like, I, I feel like in a lot of these particularly humanitarian crises that are disaster, either focused natural disaster or a war, like, in Bosnia or in Rwanda, where I've also worked, I feel the immediate, immediate, um, the first responders that are most needed are the doctors and uh, uh, the people delivering food. But at the same time, information is critical. I mean, I see information as aid. So, but I don't see it right away. But I know collecting those stories is really important so that people elsewhere see that other people are suffering and are inclined to either support an organization or pay attention to the news and educate themselves more and figure out why is this happening and and what is my role as as a citizen of the world in, in in sort of preventing this from going on for longer and people dying and kids losing their parents so there, you know, I ended up years later working on HIV AIDS in sub-Saharan Africa, and I have eventually in my life, I'm the proud adoptive mom of a young girl that, you know, was the result of the AIDS epidemic in sub-Saharan Africa. So, can you talk about how you came to be her mom? Yeah, sure. So I was, uh, I work for Care at one point in my life, which is a non-government organization that uh, you probably, your listeners have heard of the care packages, right? A care package is now Mm -hmm. a mainstream term, but the care package 
really was um, a, an intervention created after world during at the end of World War II by the care organization for refugees in Europe. And so Americans started sending care packages with essential goods that would help people that had lost their homes and had been separated from their family in after in the aftermath of World War II. So the name CARE stays, and it's uh, the headquarters is in Atlanta, but now they work all over the world in situations of uh, humanitarian crisis and also international development, addressing issues of like global health or um, agriculture, all kinds of not necessarily crisis issue. But um, I worked for them, and I was based in East Africa, in Nairobi for seven years, and uh, we did a lot of work on HIV/AIDS, which at the time that I was there was still an epidemic, um, if not a pandemic. And, and what was uh, the year? What was the years that you were there? I was there actually 2000. I ended up being based in the field 2005 to 2012. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe the years of the pandemic were in the 90s, in the second half of the 90s, beginning of 2000. And then uh, HIV AIDS, uh, antiretroviral drugs, generics became available from uh, countries like India, Brazil, but also the U.S., and those drugs really helped save lives. And so the pandemic became more of an, you know, epidemic and then more people were saved but so when I was based in I, I had already been involved in HIV AIDS work here in the states working with incredible advocates uh, also HIV positive people who were demanding access to generics because people were dying in, mm -hmm. in sub-saharan Africa and as a result there were a lot of orphans so when I ended up going to sub-Saharan Africa and being able to work there and being based in Nairobi, I was a regional press officer for CARE. I ended up visiting a lot of uh, community-based organizations that were helping people affected by the HIV-AIDS crisis and were helping communities take care of a lot of orphans. And uh, yeah, so one particular organization that I also started volunteering at it was an orphanage in Nairobi, and that's where I met my daughter Zawadi, whose name in Swahili means gift, which mm -hmm. I chose. Uh, her name, her, her name is Lydia, her middle name, but her, the name that we ended up uh, deciding on was uh, means gift because I think it's for me to remind myself that she's a gift to me rather than vice versa. A lot of people, when they hear adoption, they're like, oh, you know, kids are so lucky. Well, we are lucky to have these kids. These kids are very special kids. And I, every time I see her, even when I, you know, I say to myself, I got her, she was one year and one week and mm -hmm. she's now 13. And even when she drives me crazy and I say her <laughs> name, Zawadi is a reminder that she's a gift for me and not the other way around. Did you know that you were going to adopt? Well, after doing this type of work for 20 years, but now, but even like 10 at the time, I figured that probably, especially as a writer, this is where the dots connect to the conversation earlier. If I wanted something tangible, I wanted to know that I was making a difference in at least one person's life. Uh, a positive difference because writing stories 
really is important to bridge um, uh, knowledge gaps, but at the same time, you don't see it right away. It's not like you're a doctor and you can save a life by giving someone a vaccine or, you know, helping them through uh, an injury. It isn't as tangible. So I did start thinking about adoption. Definitely, the idea, it's part of my life's journey. I, you know, it was very intentional. I was deliberate about adoption. And uh, I figured if I can make a difference that I see in the life of one child, I feel like I'm walking the talk. Mm -hmm. So for me, that has been, uh, you know, and then everything changed. The title of your podcast, uh, for sure, the pivotal moment of my life was when I adopted her. And there's a story, a powerful story behind this as well, because my boss in Nairobi, um, a, a fantastic Kenyan man, his name was Jeffrey Chege. He, uh, a few days, I had not decided, I wanted to adopt, but I had not, I did not have the courage to go forward with the paperwork until something happened to my boss, something really drastic. He was murdered in a carjacking in Nairobi. I had spoken to my boss, Jeffrey, on a Friday. Uh, he had come back from Uganda. He was with a colleague of mine looking at programs in the field and uh, check, you know, looking at the impact, assessing the work of the non-government organization that we were all working for. And I spoke to him on a Friday. We were supposed to have a meeting on Monday. I was the regional communications person. He was my direct boss. And on a Sunday morning at 8, I got a phone call. And I, I feel... I still feel the chills when I tell you the story because it is a story that changed my life. I got a phone call at eight o'clock in the morning and uh, we were summoned to the, to the office, to the regional office in Nairobi and very urgently. And that was unusual because you know, that, that was strange and I didn't know what was, what was going on. And when I got to the office, by like 8.30, 8.45 in the morning. It's one of the few times that there's no traffic in Nairobi. Mm -hmm. uh, I found out that he had been murdered Saturday evening and he was in the car with his wife. And uh, yeah, it's still, to this day, it really like gives me the chills, this story. Yeah, he was murdered and his wife was in the car with him and she survived. And uh, that gave me the courage too really think about what's important in life that there is no guaranteed moment so yeah so what what i um yeah so did did was there a reason why he was murdered was he targeted or no was it just i thought a he random was act it was a random act there's a lot of violence in some parts of the world and people live they're better at living in the present because they don't take life for granted like we do in a lot of western countries my experience yes. of seven years in Africa taught me that every day. But for sure, after that experience, I became yes. very clear that if, I, if there was something that was really important for me to do, I had to do it. I cannot take life for granted. So what is under my control, I will do what I can to make it happen. And so... I asked his wife a few, well, anyways, just a few weeks later, I filed the paperwork for adoption. Eventually, I asked his wife to be my uh, one of the people that I needed, like a guardian in Nairobi, someone that can vouch on my character. She had survived uh, 
the the armed robbery in that case uh, and the murder of her husband. Of course, she was traumatized, but she's a woman of faith. And uh, she supported me throughout the adoption process. And many people came together to help me out. A lot of my care colleagues, Kenyan, to them, I, I became eventually, to this day, I am Mama Zawadi for them. I'm no longer Bea, <laughs> you know, and my daughter, they helped me out incredibly, but it was his murder that really propelled me into, into this journey and made me realize that I cannot take life for granted. If I want things to happen, if I'm in control, I can do my part. And if the universe aligns, things will happen. Yes. Did you co- go immediately back to the U.S. or did you spend some no, time with I her? Stayed, I stayed in Nairobi. First of all, the adoption took two years. Oh. I had a lot of paperwork. She came home maybe after Jeffrey was killed. I would say that paperwork went through. I was able to foster her three months in after the murder of my boss and then she, then it took two years two years of paperwork of visitation at the house uh, talking you know working with the lawyer getting letters from the states uh getting police reports from here it was a very very uh cumbersome process and a lot of people stood by me you know my parents eventually came around it really wasn't what they thought uh how they thought i would co- become a parent Uh, I think at the beginning they were a bit stunned, but then again, you know, my dad now knows me and my mom too. It's, it's not a coincidence that I've been on this journey. And to be honest, this podcast is somewhat connected to that too, because in some ways the people, there are people that I've interviewed that have committed violent crimes, but, and I'm like the ones that (laughs) took my boss away from us, but I still think that there has to be forgiveness and there's, we're all interconnected in some ways. I believe this is my belief that we as humans are all interconnected and the good and the bad coexist. And so I believe deeply in restorative justice processes where dialogue between offenders and victim, victim offender dialogues really become powerful and I I had, when I was based in East Africa, I also worked in Rwanda after the genocide, but I, that was also a very, very eye-opening experience that eventually brought me to this podcast because I believe that if you can forgive in Rwanda, you can forgive anywhere in the world. That's a size, that's a country the size of Maryland, where in the, Mm. in, in 1994, in three months time, over a million people were killed with machetes and and the country is now doing much better 20 years after the genocide 25 years after the genocide but i interviewed a lot of people there did some magazine stories did some personal projects as well where i met uh survivors of the genocide and where i also met people in the prisons in rwanda and then who went to to you know to 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 talk to the survivors of the genocide and there was a whole process of restorative justice called the gachacha courts which is not perfect but it was a traditional way of under trees that communities came together and talked about what happened during the genocide and 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 you know 
kind of came to terms with a very bad period of their history. Mm-hmm. Have you any desire to go back and, and work on the continent or have you brought your daughter to Africa? Yeah, my daughter, like I said before, we stayed in, in uh, Kenya till she was about five. Uh, so she, the adoption was approved when she was like, uh, I think four, maybe we stayed a few more years, so maybe six. And then she came back here. I wanted to give her stability here because I was traveling a lot in sub-Saharan Africa with my job. And also, I did. I wanted her to be, you know, like more mainstream. Like I live in Maryland, so there's a lot of adopted families. We she's in the public school system, and I felt like in Kenya, she had a, a privileged life in many ways, adopted by me uh, with an international job. And I I wanted her to have more of a regular everyday people come on experience. And I think Maryland provided that for us. Do you feel like she seems more American or, <laughs> or more, is she Kenyan, you said? She's very pl- proud to be back, black. Uh, she's, uh-huh. uh, she's uh, you know, I, I've wondered about that. And I mean, there are black Americans, of course, but she embraces the fact that she's African and American and Italian. And, and she's very <laughs> proud to be a young black girl. Uh, what, and what that means in this country. She interacts regularly with the Free Mind uh, book club because of my friend and with the guys that come out of the prison system. She goes to write nights. She writes cards to inmates. She's, I mean, my life is, is her life too. And she's not as strong as an advocate yet, but mm-hmm. I know that these are seeds implanted in her early. So she can't really escape it. I was going to say she doesn't have much of a choice. She yet. doesn't have much of a choice. But you you asked me a very important question that I didn't ask, answer about wanting to go back to the continent. I profoundly missed sub-Saharan Africa and many of the countries that I visited. I love Senegal. I've worked in uh, Rwanda. I've worked in Burundi. I've worked in Somalia. I've worked in Kenya. I love sub-Saharan Africa. There are so many stories of resilience and innovation. There's so much talent in the continent. And I would love to go back and work there. I would love to connect the dots between like prison reform uh, in the U.S. and injustices in the prison system throughout the continent. But I also want to highlight, I would love to highlight stories of... Uh, uh, unique models of justice, like restorative justice that exist in the continent with what goes on in the States. Again, I think things that we are connected and there's a lot of interesting intertwined stories that could be lessons here, but also lessons there. So there, it's an exchange that I think is worth doing and having. And I'm trying really hard to get some kind of fellowship or a grant where I can do that. Do you feel like there is encouragement around you for the project you're working on right now, one in four? There's a lot of people who believe in me and in this project. Maybe I'm my worst enemy <laughs> <laughs> because I find that I'm, I have a, a very critical self that tells me all kinds of stories. And sometimes that these stories intimidate me and I feel like I should just go back to a regular nine to five job and stop fooling around. But every time I interview someone and I feel gifted 
by the stories they share with me, whether they're local advocates or whether they're people coming out of the prison system, men and women, and they gift me with their story, I feel so inspired and I feel like I owe it to them to put the story out and to get more and more people involved in this conversation and expand this conversation. There's a lot happening in criminal justice reform, thank God. Now, mm -hmm. so I am one of many and I'm a newbie to the space, but at the same time I feel uh, there's a lot of very strong advocates and human rights activists that I've worked with. And, and people coming out of the prison system, they want to give back. They are advocates too. They are very strong advocates in, in prison reform and criminal justice reform, and they are brave. And the people who want to get involved, people who are just coming to this awareness about criminal justice reform and these programs on your podcast, you mentioned earlier that volunteering and donating are all helpful. So what do you want? What would you most want people who are not involved in what you're doing to understand? So it's, it's donating money, but also if people can't afford donating money, donate time. Find out which organizations are in your state or in your area, in your city that do reentry work and, and um, get involved. It could be, uh, you know, being part of a food drive or donating sometimes uh, hygiene products for when people come out. Uh, I do yoga. I work with yoga in, in the elementary school system. It could be teaching yoga. It could be offering yoga to families of incarcerated people. Whatever skill you have, I'm sure it can be used in the space. And then another call to action, I would say, educate yourself. Not only listen to my podcast, listen to the Ear Hustle, fantastic podcast that was picked up by public radio. What uh, was it called? Ear Hustle. Okay. Ear Hustle. Uh, you know, it's, I believe in collaboration, not competition. So there's a lot of good podcasts. Uh, there is also um, Life on the Outside, which is another woman that and she uh, is in California. She has a podcast that um, on lifers, what lifers that have been paroled that come out of the prison system. So they've done decades inside the prison. So one book to read is Just Mercy and one film to see is Just Mercy, which is the story of Brian Stevenson, the founder of the Equal Justice Initiative. And that movie will inspire you, will educate you about um, the prison system and the unfairness of our justice system on many 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 levels and uh, so I there's also amazing books out like how to be an anti-racist by Ibram X. Kendi uh, highly recommend I mean the point is I know there's a lot of information out there and we're bombarded every day but choose one thing and be an advocate if it's prison reform educate yourself give a little bit of your time or of your resources become a mentor to a returning citizen that is really important. They need mentors. Uh, mm -hmm. I've done that indirectly because of all the people that we met. I mean, first indirectly, but then directly because you become involved in people's lives. And being a mentor means providing words of encouragement, believing in the, in the potential that they have, meeting them where they are, not where they were when they committed the crime, but where they are now and where they, mm -hmm. they want to go. Yeah, that's a, that's a really powerful way to say that.
Yeah, but that, that is something I learned from them. It is not me coming up with that statement. It's someone who told me, and it was part of one of the interviews I did, and it's really, really important. I think it resonated with me, and that's exactly, that's why I don't want to spend time on the charge, because that's sure. then. Now, it's where they are now, who they are as human beings, and hearing them, seeing them, see them, right? Because the prison system dehumanizes. That's why they put numbers on people's uh uh, uniforms and they and stripes and colors, but usually they they lose the identity. But the idea is, who are these people? Whose family are they part of? What what is their story? It's of course I say humanize. They're already human, but the system has dehumanized them. So we want to sh shed light on that humanity that has been there throughout. Where can we learn more about your work and, and hear your work. So the one in four podcast is downloadable through the podcast app, like um, Stitcher, Spotify. You can find it on Spotify or, or Apple apps, uh, the Apple podcast app that is on people's phone. Uh, we are also on iHeartRadio. And I am in the process of creating a website or a page under my new website that would take you to the podcast. Right now, it's on Simplecast. We have a, that's our hosting platform. But you can find us on a podcast app. And what we ask folks that, you know, you're a podcaster too, Ronit, is please share, share this. If you think it's valuable, share it with your friend, uh, friends, and also leave us a review. Uh, subscribe, that helps us with the numbers. Where you know it's going to be hard to monetize this podcast, and we don't want to exploit uh, these stories uh, be related to. We're not selling a product. These are stories of people that have suffered in the prison system, that have uh, paid their dues, and are coming out and are trying to become productive citizens again. We are going after grants. Uh, we hope to have a season two. We accept donations. We did have a donor in season one, and the donor allowed us to pay some of the um, our senior advisor who have who are justice impacted individuals. We also bought giant cards so that we could gift everyone that is coming out of the prison system with a giant card that enables them to buy a few groceries because it's one way of helping. So that is definitely like something we always welcome because we want to make sure we give back what we get. I appreciate that. And I, I appreciate your time and thank you very much for coming on and, and sharing just a fraction of the stories you have, Bea. Oh, you're most welcome, Ronit. Thank you for giving me the time. I hope that, uh, yeah, I hope that I've inspired some people to become more involved in this, in the space of criminal justice in the U S and, yeah, because they, it, it is powerful and at the very least, go see Just Mercy. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for listening to And Then Everything Changed. For more information on this episode, photos, community discussion, and other episodes, please visit atecpodcast.com. You can also find And Then Everything Changed on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And if you like this podcast, please remember to subscribe, rate, and review. Thanks for listening.